This album is dedicated to all brothers and sisters. My men and my women. And yo, it's time. Put our hands together. Hip hop, hip hop. Because we want to talk about y'all is hip hop. The stories of hip-hop, of rap music, are the stories of a million MCs who inside of them the words are coming, the words they need to make sense of the world around them. The words are witty and blunt, abstract and linear, sober and fucked up. And when we decode that torrent of words, by which I mean really listen to them with our minds and our hearts open, we can understand their world better, and ours too. It's the same world. This is Rhymes and Reasons. So I'm Raphael Travis Jr. and I'm an assistant professor at Texas State University and I'm in the School of Social Work. So you're a philosopher? Yes. 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 I think very deeply. I think very deeply. I think very deeply. I think deeply in about four seconds a teacher will begin to speak i think very deeply the first song is my philosophy by boogie down productions the the video was as unique as the song itself because it was very stripped down basic it wasn't a lot of flash to it it just seemed like i have something to say listen to me it's a declaration of how he sees himself in relation to the rest of the world. Sounds kind of jargony, but I just felt like he was making a declaration of who he wanted to be in the world that was different than everybody else. My philosophy on the state of the world, my place in it, is just really powerful, powerful to me. You know, it starts out from the beginning. Let us begin. What, where, why, or what? You know, it's like, I'm about to tell you something really important. Listen to me. I'm about to break it down for you. Make it really, really clear so there's no no misconceptions about, about what's to come. I'm, I'm about to tell you something. And I think the directness of his lyrics helped elaborate on that. He does, you know, want to still prove that, you know, he's not a, he's not a, a sucker. <laughs> He talks about, you know, don't step to me. I'm, you know, I'm not a chump. I'm not a sucker. I'm not going to get punked. But, but at the same time, he also speaks to kind of this larger narrative of, of ultimately what he aspires to be. You know, he says, I haven't come to you to tell you I have juice. I just produce, create, innovate on a higher level. Again, it's I'm aspiring to something greater than the than the average. It was a distancing but at the same time, an embracing of being a part of this collective experience. Yeah. 
think about a lot of the problems that that people have with how hip hop has been corporatized uh, today, but he's talking about it this 20 years ago, almost being really clear about this pattern that's happening and, and the potential problems with catering to only the profit side of the culture and what can happen to the imagery that gets wrapped up in that. You have to remember in the 80s, this idea of the super predator, that's when crack and the imprisonment of so many individuals, the 10 o'clock news and the 6 o'clock news were these just negative stories about particularly young men of color. And so for artists to be really clear and, and specific and being a person that's wrapped up in this culture, it forced me to sort of ask myself the hard questions. It's like, what type of person do you want to be? I feel like the way that we need to move forward in, in society, particularly for, for youth of color, is to be with a certain kind of conviction that places us within the context of the rest of the world. And that's why I think songs like this are critical. You can choose not to ask yourself that question, or you can choose to say, wow, what is my answer to that question? How do I want to be? And what it meant to DJ Scott DJ says, I don't walk this way to portray or reinforce stereotypes of the day. Like all my brothers eat chicken and watermelon, talk broken English and drug selling. He's consciously saying, I'm trying to dispel these myths that are being portrayed because I know that this is not the norm, despite it being sort of overgeneralized and saturated in the media that this is how people are. And so for me as an individual, I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I don't want to reinforce any negative stereotypes that exist about myself or, or people that look like me. That's a decision, right? You have to decide this is how I'm going to present myself out in the world. And so it was one of those things where you kind of put that in your pocket, like, yes, this is, this is another example or another resource to draw on to say, yes, we need to be more than a lot of the, these negative ideas that are out there. And everybody's wrong, they want to mention me, or rather mention us, me and Scott LaRock. But they could get bust, get robbed, get dropped. I don't play around, nor do I F around. And you can tell by the bodies that are left around when some clown jumps up to get beat down. Broken down to his very last compound. See how it sound? A little unrational. A lot of MCs like to use the word dramatical. Fresh for 88, you suckers. I think it's a little bit different than hip-hop today. It's not that the music isn't available, because it is. The, the same messages are available, and there are artists that are saying the same thing. It's just that at that time, there were a lot of artists that were out that were more, I call it empowering. People call it conscious rap and all that. I call it that were more empowering in their message. So it was much easier to hear affirming messages. This was one of the main songs that was out at the time. You heard it and it was on regularly. You could sit and you can digest and think about, okay, what, what's being said? 
And even he talks about being a vegetarian. I didn't even know what a vegetarian was at that time. So again, it's like, it's questioning who do you want to be as a person? There are some specific ways of being that I need to, to think about and move towards. It's encouraging. To walk against the grain can be a lonely walk if you don't have support. situation my son i'm as serious as cancer all fun is done for the time the people correspond the rhymes to two is valid the best you will find living in ci who the hell am i so i, I grew up long island new york i lived in hempstead which is the south shore of long island until i was five with both my parents and we moved to roslyn which is on the north shore of long island when i was five and we moved to a lower income neighborhood in a wealthy town shortly after my parents separated and and I stayed there up through high school. Poor, not poor like never had food before, but poor where you know my mom constantly had to work two jobs or three jobs to take care of the basics. There were times where wasn't sure where the rent money was coming from, where the lights got cut off. But that wasn't the enduring experience. I had a fantastic childhood, great, great friends, a family that I knew loved and cared about me, two parents that worked really hard. And so they instilled in me from day one the value of hard work. My dad didn't live with me after a while, but I would go with him every other weekend. I had the opportunity to spend summers in the South uh, with my grandparents, lots of great memories, but we did struggle tremendously. And at the same time, I was a, a, a young black kid in a predominantly white town. Most of my neighbors were similarly struggling in the same way that our family was. And we also battled the image of being a young black male in, I consider myself an 80s kid, in the 80s. Talking about sort of what the dominant imagery and the dominant narratives at the time in the 80s were, it wasn't positive for uh, young black males. It just simply wasn't. You know, these types of things helped me know what I did not want to be. I just did not want to feed into the sort of the negative stereotypes of where people said I was going to be and what I was going to amount to. In the face of the violence that we've been experiencing for the past 400 years, is actually doing our people a disservice. In fact, it's a crime. It's a crime. Here come the drums! Can't Trust is a, it's a, it's a different type of song. This is Public Enemy, and this was a little bit later in my life. This came out in 91, 92. What I really like about it, and what I like a, a lot about, what I think is unique about hip-hop, is the ability to paint an image. I consider 
MC's expert communicators. They are the very best at communicating. I mean, they embody the oral tradition at just such an expert level. And I think this is one of those great examples of that. This was an explicit connection between African Americans and the nature of their relationship with the United States. You know, he got criticized so much in his career about sort of being angry and well, why is he so angry? And this was a great example of this is why. <laughs> you know, let me let me just explain to you why I'm so upset. It's so easy to forget because, you know, society just evolves and people sort of get involved in their day-to-day -day life and the larger story is sometimes forgotten. And I think that he just encapsulates sort of the basic story of the experience of African-Americans in the United States and sort of how this whole thing started and, and why it's challenging and it's just not so easy for many people to just sort of move on. The nature of the song is basically how do you negotiate the American dream? How do you negotiate your place as an African-American within the United States? Can you trust what we're involved with? Can you sort of trust the sort of larger story of us as a society and how we move forward? Do you really have a place at the table or don't you? And I think ultimately that's everyone's question to answer as a member of a marginalized group. But for me, what was unique about it, so as you think about classic sort of identity development, this continuous negotiation of, of your, your place in the world and how you view yourself. I was at the University of Virginia for my undergrad and it was a totally new experience for me. You know, large university, predominantly white university. And do I belong here? Like, is this where I'm supposed to be? You know, should I? buy into this story, I'll just go to college and get out and get a job and everything will be happily ever after or is this going to work? You know, the university, they didn't even allow black students in there until later in the 1900s, right? So I'm coming off of all those things that I explained to you about New York coming to this new place with this sort of continual sort of denial of this larger history of, of uh, how African Americans came to the United States. You know, in the first verse, <laughs> here's a song to the strong about a shake of the snake and a smile that went along with that. And he's essentially talking about how we've sort of been sold a lie in American society now. Does ultimately, does the United States have the best interests of African Americans at the table? If it was based on this initial level of exploitation, look at all this all this crap that we had to deal with and look at where we are now and why should we trust that things are gonna get better? And ultimately, you know, that's a faith question.
most profound piece was just how he described the experience. You know, he talks about the story, I'm kicking is gory. He's talking about Gory Island, that place that's identified as sort of the last port between Africa and, and slavery, where slaves were walked through to the ship. And, you know, they have trips back there where people can go and see it. The way that it's described, you know, I think of just how ridiculously painful that that would be. You've been around long enough to know that the people that left on the boat before, they didn't come back. And to know that you're being essentially ripped from where you know and love, I equate it to when I knew my grandfather was on his last legs and I decided to go visit him because I knew he was near the end of his life and I got to stay with him for about two weeks and I know he was close but I was actually going to the doctoral program and so school was starting so I had to go. I couldn't stay longer than two weeks but I remember the feeling of walking out of the door to his room and that knowing that that is the last time I would see him alive. That's what I think of when thinking about slaves leaving, being taken through that doorway that they have people go through and to try to get some perspective of what it was like. itself was a great one. I had a, a fantastic college career, but a lot of the same divisions are reinforced. Charlottesville, very much similar to a lot of places, the, the sort of town and gown separation. You have pockets of low-income communities that tended to be African-American, so you saw a lot of the same you know, residential segregation patterns that existed. As a college student, you are in a, a different type of environment. So. One of my sort of enduring experiences or memorable experiences that sort of reinforced some of this stuff was, uh, so I interned at the juvenile court, a family and domestic relations court is the actual name of it. And I had some important papers that I was working on related to that. And I had to go out a little bit out of, to the edge of town uh, to do some work and I was coming back and I was pulled over uh, by a police officer and I wasn't speeding or anything. You know, he asked for license registration, asked what I do, said please step out of the car and I did. So I got out and he asked me to go around to the back of the car. And so I did and that's not a great position to be in. It was a little bit embarrassing, it was a little bit angry. You know, I knew I didn't do anything wrong. And then he decides to call for a backup. And I'm like, oh no. So after about 10 minutes, the backup comes and it's a canine unit. So he proceeds to search the car and I, I knew I didn't have anything on me, but at that point, then I'm fearing for the worst. I'm in the South. And then he opens the door and just lets the dog go 
in the car. So the dog started jumping over the seats and back around and kicking stuff around. And I have my stuff in there. That's all getting muddy dog footprints all over it. And just all the worst thoughts are going through my head and all the stories. And finally pulls the dog out. They don't find anything. He says, okay, now you're free to go. Niggas, thugs, dope dealers, and pimps. Basketball players, rap stars, and simps. That's what little black boys are made of. It's not one incident. It's the cumulative experiences of, again, reinforcing this dominant narrative of you are suspicious, you don't belong, you're different, we can do what we want. And that's just how society is. And what was really challenging about that is I was in my fourth year there. And so by that point, I had achieved enough success to feel some some level of comfort or belonging or that, yeah, you know, I can do this. I am supposed to be here. I'm not that different than everybody else. And that was another sort of reality check of, well, actually, you're not that much different than what we say you are. Not that it was sort of this earth shattering of my confidence or, or anything like that, but it, it just sort of reinforced this general notion of, it's hard to just sort of have blind faith that everything will be better. This song was a little bit before that, but I, I feel like the larger question or answer that they're saying is that there are many examples to sort of reinforce the initial contract <laughs> with the United States and how we got here, that there's a, a long legacy of, of, of that initial contract and sort of the place of, of African-Americans here within the United States. We got here, we were property and exploited, and so there are a lot of examples where that, that continues. For me, it's an understanding of the context within which we sort of have to make sense of the world and work towards the positive changes that we want to see. When I became a senior or approaching senior, that's the time when, you know, you start to have to think about jobs and things like that. And you know, they had these giant job fairs where a million people and companies all come. And, you know, I remember walking around from booth to booth and, and they were all entry level, big company jobs. There was nothing for that quintessential helping kids job that I thought would be really obvious at that point in time. So then they had a, another fair and these were graduate schools. So there was a representative from University of Pennsylvania, School of Social Work. She said, do you know anything about social work? Eh, a little bit. One of my mom's many jobs for a while, she, she actually was a social worker, essentially in a group home watching the kids. Uh, that was my only knowledge of the concept. Uh, but the rep from UPenn, she went into explanation of the types of things, the types of education. And I'm like, oh, this is amazing. This is, I can 
actually use my psychology and sociology background and actually do something, yes, absolutely, sign me up. I ended up going to Michigan for social work, but that completed sort of the circle of life. Basically, it helped crystallize both my personal experiences with my vision of sort of how I wanted to be in the world as, as sort of a helper. Social work was an opportunity to utilize the best of the strengths that I had. This one came out much later in, in my life. I was a lot older. It's called Black Girl Pain by Talib Kweli and, and Jean Grey. I just love this song. It's just such a powerful song. It hits at so many cross-cutting kind of themes. I just remember the first time I heard it, I'm like, wow, this is like, this is song perfection, if there is one. You know, whereas Can't Trust It talks very specifically about the African-American experience, even though this song talks a lot about African-Americans and then Jean Grey talks about the experience of the colored population in South Africa. I think the larger narrative in this one is just the experience of the marginalized and the misunderstood and the resilience. This is for Aisha, this is for Kashira, this is for Khadija, scared to look up in the mirror. I see the picture clearer through the stain on the frame. She got a black girl name, she live in black girl pain. This is for my keeper and for my mama Sita. It's really good, ma. I'll be your promise keeper. I see the picture clearer through the stain on the frame. She got a black girl name. She live in black girl pain. In that first verse, where Talib talks about his family, he acknowledges that he has a priceless role in helping to shape how his daughter believes in herself, thinks about herself, and being her protector, he recognized he has to help build up her self-image. Not that she can't, but that there are so many competing places. And he talks about his son and their relationship. I'm a parent and have a family. And you just don't hear that as much in songs. It's about the family. It's also really significant for me because I had the good fortune to spend some time in South Africa, spend three months there back in 96 and visited some of the communities that, that Jean Grey talks about in here. When I went to South Africa, for me, I saw it as a chance to, to go to the motherland, to the home, to where my people are from. So in my mind, I'm thinking the native South African population, that was sort of my community that I belonged to, that I was excited to go see. But being light-skinned, 
when I got there, I wasn't prepared that that wasn't initially how I was going to be viewed. The way that I was viewed was akin to the colored population. And the colored population is the, the biracial population that was segregated legally and socially as an individual distinct group. And the communities are still separated even though apartheid had ended. And, and I was embraced by the colored population. And so I was able to, to develop friendships and, and sort of see how complex a space they were in, even different than the African population who had been marginalized for so long, they even had a unique relationship. So to hear her speak so clearly about it and recognize both the challenges, but also her desire to inspire and to sort of carry their message of resilience and hope forward. It's just a really powerful thing to hear side by side with Talib talking about the African-American family experience. Those two side by side are just a really, really powerful combination. To the people of South Africa. So I've always been a fan of, you know, what I call more empowering music or, or music that allows you to be introspective in a sense. You can kind of ask yourself the tough questions about sort of who you are as a person, where you want to go, and inspiring you to be active in your, in your own life to improve things and in the lives of the communities that you value, right? To be positive change agent, a role model, mentor, however you see fit, but basically music to help you think. So like I make mixtapes and I started doing it with a, a couple of other individuals who similarly like to make music. And essentially the formula is whatever songs are out at the time, layering those with speeches and maybe speeches from the past and Martin Luther King or you know, Malcolm X or you know some historical figure or maybe current. So just a blending of uh, music, of spoken words, audios, and in a way that kind of tells a story or encourages people to, to think. We decided to collaborate on one, and it was around election time. And it was a lot of things that were going on at the time. So there was stuff about the war, should we, shouldn't we be in the war, people kind of talking about that interspersed with you know some of the music that was out at the time and so it's just continued we came up with a, a name for sort of what this was about we call ourselves griot starters oh it's a a play on the word griot uh which is the oral historian and 
a play on the word sort of riot starter. So the idea that in a pipe dream was that it would encourage a re-energizing around a more purposeful use of our music and our voices to begin to have these more critical conversations as well as empowering conversations. That's always been a, a part of my experience, my life experience, right? So from knowing that growing up, if I went on the street to buy a cassette, alongside the EPMD was going to be a cassette of Malcolm X speeches or a cassette of uh, Martin Luther King speeches. Or if I went to a, a bookstore, if I went to a black bookstore, you're going to have your books, but then you're also going to have your cassette of speeches. That's just part of, of our culture is having the spoken word a normal part of how we learn and transmit information. If there's something that is of some value, let's make it part of the conversation. position ourselves to locate them, promote them, and engage them. I think that's the biggest thing, is do we engage the voices that are there? If we're silent and we don't do anything with the music and use it to help improve our own lives or improve the world around us, then, you know, it's that, that question about a tree falling, <laughs> it doesn't make a sound if there's nobody there to listen, right? It's the same thing for some of the more empowering voices in hip-hop culture. And you gotta answer soon as the trick is called Tired of post and rest in peace on my niggas' walls Too many cops with the aims on them Too many spray-painted t-shirts with little niggas' names on them And I'm sure that a little came from anger But mostly cause niggas ain't afraid to up anger And maybe I need a geography class or something But when did Chicago become a part of East Compton? And when did Windy City me will blow you all away? And when did throwing hands become the homish move to play? Around the time when the cops became the hip-hop matters at its core and I think what offers the most potential for the future I think it's embedded with life-affirming and empowering messages that can be used directly in helping individuals better themselves and make society a better place it's one of our last natural resources, particularly within the African-American community. I can't even explain how good young kids are at emceeing and communicating. They're just light years above where we were at that point in time. There's a, this sort of renewing natural resource of communication that is untapped. Well, it's being tapped <laughs> right now for very high-risk messages and narratives about 
how individuals should be within the world, but it's untapped for the empowering, life-affirming, health and knowledge-enhancing potential that exists out there. Four seconds, a teacher will begin to say. I'll play the nine.